Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. We are at Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 8 tonight, uh, the sixth beatitude. Two weeks ago, I talked to you about merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And so tonight, Matthew 5 and verse number 8, we continue with uh, another beatitude of the Scripture. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. Let's pray together, if you will, tonight. Father, Lord, I come to you this evening. I'm asking, Lord, for your help. God, mark any error, Lord, from my mind. I pray, Lord, for the anointing of your presence and your spirit. God, to permeate, Lord Jesus, this place. Help us, God, to give our attention, Lord, to your word. God, for in it, Lord, there is life. God, I pray, oh, Lord Jesus, and we need that, Lord, sustaining life and power in our life. I pray, oh, God, this evening, open up our minds of our understanding. I know, God, people still yet may have festivities, oh, Lord, God, in their day to see too. But, Lord, we've paused right now, Lord, to come together to focus our attention, Lord Jesus, upon you and your word. The lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. Shake a hand with a neighbor real quick as you're seated tonight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Lord had some, has had, we should even say, some very proper progression of the Beatitudes over the past six lessons, how each one has built upon the other, have uh, interacted with each other. And I think we'll learn very quickly this evening that the sixth one follows up the fifth one uh, quite well, uh, quite perfectly, as a matter of fact. A couple of weeks ago, as I said, our subject matter was speaking about mercy or merciful. And if I may, to kind of bring an introduction to where we are this evening, uh, there's really one problem with talking about what we talked about two weeks ago, uh, being merciful or mercy, and that is uh, sometimes people are eager to try out the validity of the teaching after they learn that someone's going to be merciful. <laughs> Amen. Uh, it's as though sometimes in, in just life, really in life, if, if someone finds someone to be lenient, they kind of push that to its extremity. Uh, people want to take advantage of mercy. They want to take advantage of mercy. Uh, for instance, if the policy is three strikes and then you're out, they'll intentionally and willfully get two strikes because they know they can without getting out. That's just the, the makeup of mercy. But properly in the list of Beatitudes, the mercy comes about blessed are the merciful, and then Jesus follows up the merciful with the pure in heart. If I might even term it like this, the pure in heart or motive will not deliberately trample upon the mercy. Because whenever you purposely take advantage of mercy and your motives are impure, you don't necessarily or you shouldn't necessarily expect the same forbearance and long-suffering whenever you purposefully and willfully 
take advantage of mercy. If I may, for analogy purposes tonight, uh, people who walk the tightrope in circuses without a safety net pay closer attention and have a greater awareness of each step they take opposed to those who have a net. Because when the net is in place, the belief of the one walking the tightrope is this, is that I can afford to be a little sloppy and less conscientious because I have this net here. So what are you saying tonight, Brother McGee? Do you endorse the net? Absolutely. I endorse the net. I endorse and I believe mercy is imperative. But that we should make an effort to walk as though it doesn't exist. Amen. And so the pure in heart, when we consider this idea of pure in heart, so we, we understand the merciful, they're going to obtain mercy, but now he goes straight to the pure in heart because he's checking our motive about what we're going to do with the mercy. He's checking our motive. And the pure in heart, I think sometimes maybe we paint it uh, with too distinct of a brush. It's not some high and some lofty goal that cannot be reached that's beyond achievement. Uh, the pure in heart is not the perfect in heart. Sometimes we try to paint it as so. The, perfect in, the, the pure in heart is not the perfect in heart. Uh, the, the, the pure in heart does not mean a sinless life. Does not mean a sinless life. Uh, that would actually be non-biblical. Uh, scripture tells us in 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 8, if we say that we have, that's present tense, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I know all times we go to Romans, is it three or five, and say, for all have sinned, past tense, and come short of the glory of the Lord. But this verse even uh, demands of us that if we say we have no sin, present tense, if presently, standing here right now, we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and that the truth is not in us. So a pure heart doesn't necessarily mean a heart uh, uh, that is devoid of all sin. Because I still am Paul McGee, that's flesh that's walking among this earth with a perfect spirit. So I still contend with this idea or this concept of sin in my life. There's only ever one time ever been a spotless lamb. There's only once ever been truly a spotless lamb. That's all there ever will be. So by nature tonight, our heart though by nature is not pure. We know that. We learned that from Jeremiah 17 and 9. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that. So by nature, the heart is not pure. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus was telling some in New Testament Scripture in Matthew that whenever he spoke of adulteries and idolatries and murder, that all those things were things that had come from the heart of man. That it was not what man put inside of him that defiled him. But there were things that issued forth negative evil things that came from the heart of man. It was the source or the fountainhead of a person's life. Proverbs 4.23 even tells us to keep our heart with all diligence. For out of it come or are the issues of life. So our heart by nature is not pure. And a heart, I should say a pure heart. Uh, can only be obtained, and we might even better say, rather than obtaining a perfect heart, like it's something that you 
you reach a state, you have a perfect heart, and it's never to be flawed again. Rather than saying that it's something that's obtained, I think it'd be better to say that a perfect heart is maintained. Because it's, it's not like you achieve it and then it's over. It's a trophy you put on your shelf. It's something that continuously has to be maintained through a purification, if you will, process. So you, you never just obtain it. You always, you always got to be conscious about the condition of the heart because by nature it will turn toward evil. By nature it will turn toward deception and wickedness. So something must be set in place for that heart to maintain a place or a state of purity. So it has to have constant monitoring in our life to have a pure heart. The word pure actually comes from a word from which we get our English word catheter which is in its simplest definition, and say, so where's he going with this? <laughs> which in its simplest definition is an instrument for removing impurities from the body. So to have a pure heart is to have a heart that is constantly being removed from it, the impurities that would be in it. So when we think of this idea or this concept of pure, it means two things, scholars say. It means the removal of contamination and it also means unmixed or unadulterated. An unmixed heart. An unadulterated heart. A heart that is constantly being removed of its contamination. So whenever Jesus brought about blessed are the pure in heart, he was really striking at the core of an issue. Because an old saying used to be years ago that the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart and whenever he's talking now largely to a Jewish audience in the Sermon on the Mount consists of people that were very well acquainted with ceremonial practices and concerns they were very caught up in the external things having washed hands washed dishes robes with uh, a border upon them they were very concerned about the external things. In their mind's eye, by their external things, they would say, we are pure. We're ceremonially pure. We are keepers of the ceremonial law. But Jesus, whenever he came with this beatitude, went a little further than the external. They probably wished he had said, blessed are the pure, so that they could assume that he was talking about ceremonial pure things, external things and said chalk it up for us we got that one Jesus and we shall see God but he went a little deeper than that he went deeper than being the ceremonial pure but he said the pure in heart which dealt with not the external but dealt with the internal consider if you will tonight Acts chapter 15 when you look at Acts chapter 15 there's a big dispute going on it's a dispute between the Jew and a dispute between the Gentile and Paul right now he was the one that went to the Gentile salvation he extended uh, the word of Christ to them so he has been their spokesperson he's standing in their corner so to speak and there's a big dispute right now going over the necessity of a literal circumcision and the Jews said that nobody can be saved unless they were circumcised as you would be ceremonially by the law 
But Paul arose and he said something a little bit different, a little bit otherwise in Acts 15 and verse 8. The Bible says, Paul said, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as He did unto us. Verse 9, And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. The Jews said they cannot be saved unless they've been circumcised literally, ceremonially, according to the law. And Paul says, Hey, I've been with these Gentiles and the same Holy Ghost you all received, God knows their hearts. So let there not be any difference between what you got and what they got. Although ceremonially you've been circumcised, yet spiritually they've been circumcised. He says, now look at it now. I want you to notice though the terminology of Scripture in verse number 9. Notice the tense of the verb. He said, purifying their hearts by faith. It is not purified their hearts by faith as though it's an accomplished deed that's done and over with but he said purifying their hearts in other words this is something that has started and it's a continuous experience there's a purifying their hearts by faith and so we as Christians today again we do not arrive at some state epitome of being pure in heart we are constantly being purified there is a purification that is constantly taking place in our life that then denotes us as being the pure in heart. It is constantly a process. It never lets up. It's never a door that you close and say, it's over. Here until rapture day, we're, our hearts are going to be through a purifying process until we're changed, until we become like Him. Scripture also says in Titus 3 and 5, I don't know if I submitted that one, but the Bible says if you uh, look down through there, if I can, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now notice again, by washing and regeneration, and it did not say and renewal of the Holy Ghost, as though that was a standalone process that just took place, but by renewing which indicates a continuous, a continuous action, a continuous action. How do people become or remain and maintain that pure in heart whenever they constantly have a renewing of the Holy Ghost? That's the reason why it's important to examine yourselves whether you be in Christ. Because if it's been a while since you spoke in tongues... If it's been a while since there's been a renewing of His Spirit or the renewing of the Holy Ghost in your life, honey, I want to get that right because every day I want there to be a renewing of the Holy Ghost in my life because what that does is keep my heart pure. Keeps it pure. Protects that. Defends that. Keeps it pure. Now, I don't want... I, I always hate trying to maybe be misunderstood. So it's not to say, I know I went through this process. I was talking about a ceremonial law circumcision. It's a spiritual circumcision. And through that and all of this, I don't want someone to believe that I'm saying that the outside does not matter. Circumcision, according to the law, literally was a ceremonial law. There's a lot of Old Testament ceremonial laws, even civil laws, that no longer existed in the New Testament Scripture. 
because Christ fulfilled those. But there is something called a moral law that is a stick in the mud from generation to generation. And it doesn't change, nor will it be gone from one generation to the next. There was a moral law that was established in the old that was still present in the new that's still present today. So it's going to remain with us. Someone say amen. And with that being said, whenever we talk about the outside, the outside matters. It does matter because we understand from Scripture because that's what man sees. He sees the outside. Man cannot see the heart. Only God can see the heart. We oftentimes use this Scripture, 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Now, that is not to say that the Lord does not look on the outward appearance. But what it tells me is this, is that he sees that and beyond. He sees not only the external, but he sees the internal. He sees what man cannot see. He sees the inside. He sees what man cannot see. He knows the purity or impurity of the heart. Amen. Now, I don't want you to now mistaken that the inside is no great deal. Because it is. As a matter of fact, the sacrifices from the Old Testament, the old sacrifices were representations and substitutes, if you will, for the offerers. Whenever they gave an animal or a lamb or a ram, whatever, it was a substitute for themselves. It was a substitutionary type of sacrificial system. God was so, so knew that the inside was so vitally important to him and to sacrifices, and I'm just giving these to you for your reference, that God would have the inner parts, or what they would call his inwards, offered up as part of the sacrifice. You can look at that in Leviticus 4.11. In other words, he didn't just want a leg. Amen. He didn't just want the head, but he even wanted the inwards of the animal to be offered as a sacrifice. Thus and so, also in Leviticus 9.14, God commanded Aaron, he said, before you sacrifice this inward, I want you to wash it. The inwards were so important, which was a type and shadow of the offerer himself, or the, uh, hallelujah, of the offerer himself in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's us, it's a spiritual happening. That was a literal happening then. Now it's a spiritual happening now. God was so concerned with it, he says, I want your insides washed, and I want you to offer what's on the inside to me just as well, what's on the outside. Amen. So Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees prominently right now in his day and even with the Sermon on the Mount. And he came pretty, pretty strikingly hard down upon them one time in Matthew 23 and verse 25. This is what he said in concerning this outside-inside stuff. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now there's an explanation. But I believe, man, there was some passion spoken here. For ye make clean, listen now, the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion 
and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, and that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whitened sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So the Lord is rebuking the Pharisees and the scribes because they made the outside of the cup and the platter clean. And they allowed the outside of the sepulchers to appear beautiful. And he calls them hypocrites because they were appearing to be what they were the outside of the cup and platter was clean and therefore anybody walking up at any distance from it would assume that's clean. Whitened sepulchers did not indicate deadness in the sepulcher. Amen. It indicated perhaps something that was more new and still yet unused. But whenever they get there, there's dead men's bones inside of that. He said, you're doing really good with all this outside stuff. But something that he was illustrating is you can have it outside clean and inside messed up because you have learned how to just paint it, dress it, polish it to make it appear something it is not. But I believe there is a principle that is unmistakable. That's from verse number 26. So I understand you can manipulate the outside without impacting the inside. That's what they did. They manipulated the outside without impacting the inside. But from verse 26, I learned something emphatically. It bears to me that you cannot attend to the inside without it affecting the outside. Because he said in verse 26, Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. In other words, by you putting some attention on the inside, the outside seems to take care of a cleansing within itself when you concentrate in on the inside. You're trying to do the outside, and you can do the outside and never impact the inside, but no well, if you concentrate on the inside, you can't but impact the outside. Concentrate on that, and then he says that the outside may be clean as a result of where you're putting your concentration. Because if you're going to affect the murder, idolater, and adulterer that Matthew spoke of, and Jesus was the one speaking those words, they all flow from the heart. And if you want to treat a, sim if you want to treat a problem rather than the symptom, you're going to have to go to the heart. A disheveled outside is a symptom of a deeper problem. It's the symptom of a deeper problem. It goes deeper than the external. It goes all the way to the heart. So the Lord rebukes them. And he continues on. Look at Psalms 24 and verse number 3. I got a lot of scripture tonight and I'll try to wade through it if you'll wade through it with me. 
Psalms 24 and verse 3, the questions are posed. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Here comes our answer. Here comes the response of verse 4. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Now notice, he's saying, who's going to ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who's going to stand in his holy place? The answer is, it's the one with clean hands and, everybody say and, and a pure heart. Clean hands speak of the external. Pure heart speaks of the internal. He did not say it's either one or the other, but he said it's who the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. It's the one that has it together externally and internally that shall ascend the heel of the Lord and stand in the presence of the Most High God. In other words, these qualifiers are not one or the other. They are both and, and, and. So I ask tonight, we've already seen how can, how can we keep or maintain a pure heart. We've already seen that it can be done by a renewing, that consistent process of renewing of the Holy Ghost. But can I say also tonight that it can be kept by also often, often looking into the Word of God. John 15 and verse 3, Scripture says, Now ye are clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you. Now why does then the Word have such great impact in our life? I lean on David and the Scriptures that was written with his pen. In Psalms 119, verse 140, he says, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. So if I'm being cleaned by a very pure word, it can't but affect my purity and my cleansliness. If I can say it like this tonight, frequent interaction with a very pure word is going to cleanse you and help sustain a pure heart in you. This is not, well, I've got to read my Bible today. <laughs> this, is, this is your bath for today. This is your shower. Go a week right now with these hot temperatures without getting cleaned up. You're going to lose friends and family. <laughs> Yet we'll think in terms of that concerning the natural, but when we think of the spiritual, that he cleanses us through that very pure word, when we abstain from it, there is a lot of dross that's collecting on the heart. There is a lot of clutter, a lot of dirt, a lot of grime, a lot of contamination that's now changing the heart from a state of purity to one of going back to nature of being unclean. Mm -hmm. What happens whenever a body is left unbathed and unshowered for a period of time? Honey, if, if you would happen to get wounded, you're more apt for infection. If you get infection, do you see where all this can lead? Whenever the body is uncleansed, well, whenever you have a heart like that, let me walk along these lines, and you get wounded. Mm-hmm. It ain't hard for that thing to fester up into something bigger than what it ever started to be. 
Whoa, glory, amen, hallelujah. Because we need a constant interaction with the word. It will help purify our heart. Now, where the scripture says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We need to talk about this seeing God thing. Because we're not talking about seeing God in a literal sense because God is a spirit. All right? Anytime the Bible talks about the finger of God, the hand of God, the arm of God, it's just personifying God. God doesn't have, per se, a literal, spiritualized left hand, finger, arm, only through the body he made for himself, Jesus Christ. All right? The Bible says in John 4, 24, God is a spirit. He's invisible. John 4, 24, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Just laying a little foreground here. In 1 Timothy 1, 17, Now unto the King eternal, speaking of God, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. First Timothy 6.16. We're rolling here, buddy. The Bible says, Who only hath immortality, speaking of God, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. God is a spirit. He's invisible. No man has seen him at any time. They seen him in the forms of different things. They've seen him through the representations of other things. They've seen him in Jesus' earthly ministry through the face of Jesus Christ. If I may share some verses, the only way that man has ever seen God is through Jesus Christ. The Bible says in John 14 and verse 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou, shew us the Father? And you're saying, show us God. He says, well, if you see me, you see. This is, the, this is the best picture of God you're ever going to get. Amen. Because God invested himself in that body known as Jesus Christ. John 1 and verse 18, the Bible says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. How is that so? Because of Colossians 1.15, the Bible says who, which is speaking of Jesus Christ, read a few verses ahead of that, who Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So when we talk about blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, we're not talking about seeing a literal, physical God. There's a principle that was relayed, and I want to share it today. There's a principle relayed by William Barclay. He said, you only see what you're able to see. With that being said, the idea is if an ordinary person would go out tonight, with it being dark, stars in the sky, look up, sees all these things that look like pinholes in a black canvas, light shining through, and you say, well, looky there. Just the common, ordinary man says, well, look at the stars. Now you have an astronomer that walks out amidst all of those. They say, well, that's Venus. This is the constellation, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Now if someone that's an old navigator of the sea goes out there, they could find their direction to anywhere they wanted to go along a trackless sea because of their knowledge of what they know concerning the stars. So each one would see what they're able to see or what they're knowledgeable about what they are seeing. For that matter, we could go down Old Country Road and there could be all kinds of hedgerows and wildflowers and 
flowers and stuff just growing among the grasses. And, you know, I'm looking and thinking that's a mess. But the botanist could go out there and start naming these scientific names for each plant and flower. Might even strike a rare flower among them all. Because they're able to see, they're able to see what they're able to see. In other words, what I'm saying tonight is this. Whenever we have, listen to me very carefully. Whenever we have frequent interaction with a very pure word. When we have frequent interaction with a very pure word that's going to cleanse us and help sustain a pure heart in us. The more we have contact with his word, the more capable we are of seeing God. Because seeing God isn't, listen, you've got to understand this, seeing God isn't all about eyesight seeing. Sometimes that's a, it's about perception. And it's about awareness. It's about recognition. How can two people be in the same service, one go away and say, boy, that was a flop, and another one say, man, that was awesome. Sometimes it's about where people are in their connection with His Word. One can leave and say, say I'm aware that I've been in His presence. I recognize God was in that place. Another one wouldn't know it if they hit Him upside the face. And a lot of it is all about what you're capable of seeing because of what you've ingested in your life, the purity of His Word. Because the more I read His Word, I look at nature and I see God. The more I read His Word, when I see that one didn't get an accident, I don't chalk it up to luck, I see God. Oh yes! Another, whenever I see someone has walked a long road of a sinful life and God reached down and saved them, you know what I see? I see the handiwork of God. Amen. Sometimes it's according to what you, you know, what you frequent yourself with. You'll have a greater inclination to recognize it whenever you, because in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Don and I, whenever we were in Little Rock, Arkansas and we had conference as I said in closing Sunday night, we went, we went to go see an art museum. We thought, man, here's a chance of a lifetime. We went to see an art museum. A guy told us, man, there's works of Picasso there, and there's works of Rembrandt there. Man, I've never seen any of that. Can't say I'm a real art buff, but, you know, I've never seen any of that. People got to pay money to see stuff, and that was free. So I was going to be able to say, man, I see Picasso and Rembrandt. Man, I can get, me, I get my little painter's brush and put it behind my ear and say, man, I've seen this stuff. And did it for free. And so we went there and began to walk through this art gallery. My first time ever. And have these paintings that were properly positioned. I mean, a lot of wall and not much hanging on them, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> different colors and lights that were shining down. And there were some, Brother Mason, man, I knew what that painting was about. I mean, there's a person's face there with graphite pencil, which was adorable. I really loved the graphite stuff. I thought, man, they could do that for a number two pencil. I couldn't hardly even write my name. And they doing that stuff with a number two pencil. And we're going through here and we're looking at all this. But there were some paintings that required you to take some time. They had little seats there and I understood why they were there because sometimes you had to sit down. We'd walk an excess 10 blocks, get there in sweltering heat anyways. I was ready for something. And uh, some of them, I had to sit down and you had to, 
gaze at them for a while before you truly understood what they were all about. For instance, there's one we went by. Man, it was huge, probably just as huge as this section of the wall where the beam is. It was huge. And to me, Brother Mason, it looked like a bunch of boxes and scribbling that Mariah and Trevor could have done. And with just a quick pass by that, that's what I would have said it was. Abstract art. But we sat down. And we paused. And we gazed. And Don says, do you see that animal over there? I'm like, yeah. And we've seen another one over here, another one down here. And before you know it, this thing started to make some meaning because I took some time to slow down and stop and interact with what was before me. Now, we went by another painting, and, you know, it, it looked like some lady standing there, and it's really nice. You got some marble and so on and so forth. And there's a group of tourists coming along. And there's a lady, I guess she's a liberal arts teacher, I don't know, but she would stand, now, if you look at this painting, you're going to see her. And she's explaining all this stuff. I didn't want to be a part of that group. I felt very intimidated. So as soon as they came in the room, we left from that painting. And I start going looking at this one like, I got this. I don't need you. I'm looking at this painting, but she's talking about this painting we just left. I wasn't really intrigued right here. My ear was leaning heavy over here. And she began to talk about the artist, the time frame in which the painting was painted, about some Greek mythology. And whenever it all got done, I didn't even know what that painting was saying to me. Whenever she finished, man, I knew exactly what was going on. But what I was saying was, I would have never known the true meaning of that. Had I not known the information she had, she knew the painting's artist. She knew the time period in which it was painted. She knew that there was a deeper meaning beyond the surface. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we shall see him or we shall know him whenever we spend some time and we get to know the artist. We get to know the time frame. We get to know the climate of all what's taking place. When there's a deeper meaning beyond just the surface. You shall see God whenever you become pure in heart. Because whenever you come to that place of maintaining a purity in heart, you're becoming more like the one that you're looking for. That brings me to a second little principle. You only see what you're looking for. This is a common thing for my kids. I, they, Travis says, I want tea. I say, go get your cup. He goes pondering off into his room, comes out in just a few seconds. Dad, I don't know what you have. Uh-huh. I can't find it. So I go exactly where he was and has been and do what? Find the cup. How could he overlook that cup? That is in plain sight. He could do it because he wasn't truly looking for it. My wife even, I, I, they got it for me. I can stand at a refrigerator and be looking at something. Honey, where's such and such? I don't think it's in here. You didn't buy it. She comes right in there, right over my shoulder, grabs right where it's at. Now, why couldn't I find that? Evidently, folks, I am not really looking for it. I'm just asking for assistance in saying that. What are you saying then? Some people will not see God because they're not looking for God. You've got to look for God while you're still on this old earth in order to see Him in glory someday. And if you're looking for Him, you will not be disappointed. You shall see God. You have an awareness about Him. You'll recognize. 
recognize him in your life, in your church, in your family, if you're looking for him. see God is to perceive God is to recognize God to see God is to be admitted into his presence and his friendship the ancient language of the orientals they had dictatorships whenever a ruler was so revered like the king of heaven to see the king's face meant that you could have audience with the king amen that's the reason why in 2 Samuel 14 and verse 24, I'm getting there for it, folks. I'm not forgetting about your waboom, waboom fireworks, all right? In 2 Samuel 14 and verse 24, the Bible says, And the king said, Let him, speaking of Absalom, turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Verse 28 records, So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. What had happened prior to this, Absalom had killed his brother Amnon. And as a result of that, he fled for his life from the country. He got out of the country. But when he returned, he was not allowed to see the king's face, which basically meant this, that he was not extended an audience with the king. He did not have fellowship with the king to see God is to have an audience with God to see God is to have fellowship with God that's the reason why the scripture speaks and it's not up there but for your own perusal of Esther 1.14 the Bible states the name of seven chief princes of Medo-Persian empire that sat first in the kingdom of Ahasuerus and the Bible says they are they which saw the king's Face. In other words, to see God is to experience His presence and have an audience with His essence. Mm. If I may, and I, I'm the plan's landing right now, you can stand. If I may state my own words tonight, this the sixth beatitude, if I may restate this in my own words, I would say it like this. Those who strive to emulate God will recognize God. Those who strive to emulate God will recognize God. Listen right now. People have celebrities, athletes that they adore. And usually in doing so, many times they try to act like them, dress like them, talk like them. And if you were to set them in a crowd with a bunch of people and their hero is in the crowd, they're going to be able to point them out because they're knowledgeable of them and they are imitators of them they know how they walk they know how they talk they know how they appear and they might look a little bit like them in the crowd themselves because that's their hero honey if you place God on that pedestal and if you will try to emulate God you won't have no problem recognizing awareness of whenever he comes in your house or in the house of the Lord you shall see God Brother Mason, if you'll come tonight. Hallelujah. Blessed are the pure in heart. But that's something to be maintained. For they shall see God. And let me tell you folks. Having come along the journey on the Beatitudes. Of not having awareness of God to this place. Where I can secure an awareness and a recognition of Him. Honey, that's where I want to be. 
Because prior to this journey, I've been in the place that God could show up and I didn't know it. Amen. That he would be in, in a certain circle and I would not even know if God was there or not. Because I wasn't trying to see him. I wasn't trying to emulate him. I wasn't trying to act like him. My heart was quite different than his heart. But the more you seek him, the more that you allow there to be a renewing of the Holy Ghost in your life and a washing, if you will, of this very pure word in your life, you're going to pick up on God being in a lot of things that you didn't pick up he was in before. You shall see God, not just here on earth, but someday we shall go to heaven. We shall be as he is. Hallelujah. And we'll have audience with his presence. Audience with his power. Audience with that great, wonderful, wonderful Lord. We shall see God. We shall recognize him. We bow our heads in this place right now. We can just begin to pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.